Today, we are joined by a senior lecturer in property economics from the Queensland University of Technology Business School, where we unpack her post-pandemic predictions. In sum, we are witnessing a critical shift of power from the city centres to the suburbs. This is episode 12 of the Field Trip Podcast. Let's go. Dr. Andrea Blake brings a wide range of real estate expertise to the table in this episode. With research in such diverse topics as the impact on rural land values of carbon sequestration to the outcomes of projects involving seniors living being created on school campuses. But following recent articles about what she sees as longer term trends arising out of the pandemic on the real estate market, we thought we'd get her on the pod and dig a little bit deeper. And as we did so, a consistent theme emerges, that of structural change being underway, which will see a broader distribution of commercial activity throughout greater city areas and a stronger focus on local community. If you haven't realized already, this podcast is a shallow attempt by me to enjoy the thinking of people who know much more than I do on topics I am deeply interested in. Please share that with me now. Here is Dr. Andrea Blake, Senior Lecturer in Property Economics from the Queensland University of Technology. Welcome to The Field Trip, a podcast about the future of commercial real estate, the future of law and everything in between. Today we are joined by Dr. Andrea Blake from Queensland University of Technology Business School, where uh, Andrea specialises in commercial real estate. Andrea, welcome. Thanks very much, Alistair. Um, Perhaps to start, if you could give us some context about what you do at, at, at QUT, perhaps how you got there, backstories are always interesting, and some particular areas of focus both before the pandemic and, and at the current time. Yes, certainly. So I've actually been at QUT for quite a long time. It's been around 18 years. Um, I was a student at QUT. I was actually one of the first property economics Um, students at QUT when property was introduced 30 years ago and we're coming up for our reunion very soon. Wow. Um, Yes, very exciting times. So after that, I went and I studied law and I worked as um, a property valuer, um, became a registered valuer. um, And I now actually sit on the board of value, sorry, the Valuers Registration Board of Queensland. Um, So as far as things have changed, I, I... Most of my research, I've just continued on. I did my PhD in carbon sequestration and the impact on rural land and valuation practice. So it actually couldn't be further from commercial real estate. (laughs) Um, Following that, I have um, probably the most exciting thing that is a project that we started this year, which is a National Health and Medical Research Council sponsored project uh, on intergenerational living, uh, where we're looking at repositioning um, senior living on uh, school campuses and the benefits that that has for both generations. School campuses in um, at what level? All, all levels or tertiary focused? Um, no, secondary yep. and possibly primary. Wow. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. It's a, it's a really um, diverse group of researchers involved in that project from architects to lawyers, property people, planners, um, health scientists looking at the health benefits of this. Uh, so it's it's been quite an exciting project. I think it's been a little slowed down by COVID, but um, we're really getting stuck into it now. And what um, 
so how, how far are you progress? Are you starting to get uh, some, you're starting to get some signals from the research you've done so far as to um, the kinds of conclusions that, that you'll draw on that? Because that, I mean, just the, you know, a theme of the discussion that we're, um, you know, the, that we're looking to have today, which is, is about COVID, obviously underlying all of that is, is fundamental and structural change or, or what might happen. What you're talking about here is, is that in a different format or certainly not triggered by, by COVID. So what are you seeing so far in that respect? That sounds really interesting. Well, I feel like we won't have true um, completion on the project until we have one of these, at least one of these facilities built. Yes. Uh, so we don't, we haven't actually captured the benefits at this stage, but instinctively there's a lot of benefits that we can see to both generations, particularly as far as COVID is concerned. Uh, we've seen that, you know, one of the, COVID has really impacted the vulnerable groups in society. And one of those vulnerable groups are people in aged care facilities. So we're hopeful that this um, senior living option will allow people to stay healthier and age in place without having to be um, enter into those sorts of aged care facilities. And where are the projects coming online or likely to come online? In what parts of the world are they? Are they local? Are they sort of European? It sounds something like Europe would do first before us. Well, I think there are some examples of projects like this in Europe, but they will be local, so they'll mm -hmm. be around Queensland. It's probably too early to talk about exactly where, but yep. um, yeah, quite exciting. No, that, that's that's interesting. I, I'm, sort of, I'm trying hard not to get sidetracked here, but that uh, <laughs> perhaps I'll have to grab you at a different time to talk about that. But it's um, it just the whole, uh, you know, I, I think also of um, build to rent as as another theme, sort of a new asset class coming in, and how that's changing in a different sense the way people might live uh, and. Um, Wow, that's yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to come back to you on that one at another time. Interestingly, though, or interesting to me, how do you like you mentioned all these different people that feed into uh, a, a research project like that? How does that actually come about? Are they is it all QUT based? Is it a, a core at QUT and others coming in? How does that all work? Well, I think the impetus for this project was actually driven through um, a local architecture firm, mm -hmm. um, in, in particular, Mark Trotter. Um, so I think um, the idea basically came about through projects that had been undertaken um, in that firm and with connectivity um, with QUT researchers as well. I think the, it came about actually through the architecture team at QUT um, and a lady called Marissa Lindquist, who is involved with... Um, has been involved with Mark Trotter in a, in a teaching and research capacity. So from there, a team was built around that central idea. And that's generally how a research project would be advanced. It mm -hmm. would be, you know, a couple of people come up with an idea and then look to build a team around a project. Interesting. I really, I look forward to hearing how that progresses. I'd love to hear more at a later point. But that's a neat transition to something I wanted to ask at the outset, when we're when we're looking at the impact of, of COVID, and there's a there's a lot on sorry on the on the real estate market, um, there are there's there's a lot of press about on people's views on how things are going. Some of it anecdotal, perhaps some of it a little bit more substantive. Where are we at in terms of the breadth and quality of data that we have available to start? analysing the current environment and perhaps extrapolating on that for where things might go? Well, it, it is such an uncertain time that we're in at the moment. And I think 
Um, unfortunately, a lot of the data that we're getting is quite anecdotal. Um, I'm seeing that, you know, a lot of the, um, the information sources that are appearing in, say, media and other, you know, more anecdotal information um, sources are, are really um, those with vested interests. It might be developers who are just springing a building out of the ground mm -hmm. who are painting a far more rosy picture than what we actually have about commercial office buildings. Um, it, it's it's difficult to act, and they haven't. There hasn't been a lot of property transactions, mm. so there's not a lot to report on in a lot of cases. And I think too, we're in a situation that we're really not going to know um, or be able to ascertain the real picture for, for some time mm -hmm. because, you know, those companies who are in um, leases of significant commercial real estate will continue to pay their rent. They'll still be in that lease. But it won't be until um, the end of the lease term when we'll know exactly, you know, what their next move will be. Is mm -hmm. it to downsize or um, you know, are they seeking to move to a different location? So I think a lot of those... Um, decisions uh, may have been made but haven't been implemented at this stage. So I think it impacts on the amount of data that we can actually collect. Okay. I will have to sort of have an anecdotal discussion uh, at this point. Um, you mentioned your sort of the, your valuation background or, or underpinning. So you're sort of very strong in that area. What does, I mean, you've already said there's a lack of information out there. So um, what does that do to the valuation process? What might valuers be going through? What might institutions who have obligations to undertake valuation processes, um, what might they be doing at the moment with an absence of reliable information? Uh, well, I must point out, I'm not actually a practicing commercial valuer. So what I'm hearing though, is that um, there's obviously a lot of disclaimers in valuation reports. Mm -hmm. um, highlighting the level of uncertainty in the market. Uh, I think to th there has been more frequent valuations um, than would otherwise be, be undertaken. Um, so I think in some respects, there's a lot more valuation activity happening than what would normally be undertaken. Over, over the, the COVID period or as yeah. a trend in the market generally? Because I've noticed um, that trend for a while, you know, people even quarterly or, or more often having to revalue portfolios, which seems a bit ridiculous. But you're saying yeah. in the COVID period, more frequent valuations. Yes, more frequent valuations. Um, how, how, does that, how does that work in an environment where there's an absence of new reliable data to underpin them? That's a very good question. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, to, to some extent, um, valuers are obviously relying on transactional data to yeah. undertake their valuations. If there isn't a lot of data, then um, I guess their valuations are a little bit more uncertain mm -hmm. and hence um, the disclaimers in the report. Um, and I, th I think too, in, in certain sectors of the market, I think possibly the market had become a little bit overheated and it has, there obviously has been a correction that has been made to valuations. Mm -hmm. So particularly in the retail environment. Yep. Yeah, that's... Um... Yeah, I, I, again, I, I just, as you said before, uh, it might be a little while until we get some more understanding of where things are going to go from um, from a valuation perspective. So it'll be an interesting space to watch. Well, let's, you know, with the information that we have then, let's sort of take a step back and look at some broader trends. You've written um, sort of a great article uh, in June or July of this year available on QUT's website. We'll 
pop a link in our show notes for this episode about that. Um, and you were pointing out some some trends at that point. Um, things have changed since then. I'm keen just to get a sense from you, perhaps both in the office market and the retail market, what it is that you're that you're seeing or observing. Again, what do we see now? Where might that go? Uh- well, I guess anecdotally, I think there has been a shift generally from um, centralised CBD environments to more decentralised environments. I mean, a lot of people working from home. So we've seen, uh, you know, a lot of a lot more vacancy um, in the environment in the CBD, whether it's in retail or commercial. Um, and I think it's interesting to note too, some of the predictions that I made in that earlier article, I've completely changed my mind on, okay. particularly when it comes to co-working spaces. Yes. You know, I really thought that the pandemic would mean the death of co-working spaces, but mm-hmm. I really have changed my mind there uh, because I think, you know, for a lot of people working from home is not what they want to do either. Um, so co-working spaces give um, people the opportunity to have, you know, another environment where they can actually interact with people um, and form social networks in a sort of more micro um, community um, rather than being in the CBD building. I suppose too for um, for business owners who would otherwise have had a centralised location all under their own lease, it would offer a, a flexible outlet for their space requirements as well, both in terms even in a centralised location but perhaps more um, geographically spread. Exactly. And I think too, I think some companies must be considering that there is a risk with having their entire team under one roof. Mm -hmm. So having the team more geographically dispersed does reduce the risk in a pandemic. Oh, I see. So from the perspective of saying, well, for example, everyone, you know, we have our head office in Melbourne. Uh, and we've seen what's happened with Melbourne, how they've been more um, severely affected than other parts of Australia. So perhaps that's not sensible for any one location to be the critical mass of, of our sort of our, you know, by number or by sort of key key members of the team we might spread them geographically more readily. Is that is that where you go? Exactly. It does tend to provide a bit more protection against, um, you know, if there is any infection. Yeah, that's um, it's. I, I've had some some recent discussions as I was sort of sharing with you before we started the um, no to turn the record button on. I've had some discussions with a couple of tenant rep organisations as part of this series of podcasts focusing on on the uh, on the pandemic, and it's interesting to hear about their clients who are making decisions now. And what it is that um, you know, what it is that they can commit to, and what they can't. And, and I suppose there's there was a, a time when I was having those discussions where people couldn't come to the office, and so it gave a certain amount of flexibility for those business owners um, to be able to not have to make a decision now. But I guess as people do return to work, touch wood, um, and and we we start to move through this, um, it will be interesting to see where those people in similar positions will be making their decisions as to what their office looks like, um, which I, I, want, I want to unpack a little bit more as well, because I think that that's quite a fascinating, um, fascinating discussion. Um, you touched on remote work. Um, what do you think, I mean, I, I've spent time in a WeWork. I'm actually a, a big 
big fan of their model and it's a great place to work. It's a great environment. And I've seen a few places around Australia as I've traveled for work that that's been quite good, but they're all or largely all in CBD areas. Do you see um, these uh, types of facilities spreading out into more suburban locations? I do. I think there's a benefit in um, having more localised, um, you know, co-working arrangements. Um, there's a benefit from obviously connecting with your local community and developing that micro community. Uh, but also I can see that there's a benefit even from, uh, you know, the, the childcare and, uh, and you know, that ha- there's a flow on effect there if um, childcare can be localised as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but there's even a movement now to have um, co-working spaces included in residential developments. Mm-hmm. So you know, a, an apartment complex or you know, maybe a, an apartment precinct could have you know tennis courts, pools, and co-working spaces. Uh, and I, I really can see the benefit of um, having that localized community and also having um, an environment to work which is close to home but away from your actual home where there are many distractions. So, so we're getting into this this idea of a fragmentation of um, of workplace. What, what's your what's your broader view then? If you're sort of looking into your crystal ball now, what are some of the macro? You're touching on a few of them, but paint paint the picture of what you think things might look like in sort of a five to ten year time horizon. It's interesting because there's been so much um, emphasis on the central business district uh, and, you know, we've all headed off into our CBD offices or, you know, QUT has a wonderful campus um, in the CBD. Um, But I can see that, you know, that those environments may still exist, but the function of those environments is likely to change. I think for for many businesses, um, we've proven that we can quite effectively operate remotely. Uh, so I think there will be uh, more of a shared uh, work environment between either the home or a localised workspace and uh, a more centralised area where people perhaps go to learn and socialise, um, but not necessarily a desk um, that you're sitting at uh, for the entire workday mm-hmm. doing the work. It, uh, it strikes me to, um, you know, one, as, as a so someone who's, who's interested in, in the real estate industry and is interested in seeing examples of good development, um, it's easy to find things that, that don't meet that requirement. One thing I've always struggled with is orphaned retail strips at the or retail pods at the bottom of, um, of high-rise or high-density residential. Um, they always seem to be very difficult spaces to fill, particularly where that residential isn't already in um, an, an area that's got a lot of traffic, which is, which is common. Do you think that we're going to start filling in some of these empty spaces and perhaps by a, a greater variety of uses in these developments, we might start to solve a few of those problems? I hope so. If the retail space isn't utilised, then I think there's the perfect opportunity for co-working space or some other um, type of service, um, which is necessary for people who are working locally. Uh, no, that's um, sorry. <laughs> Maybe I haven't answered your question. No, 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 no. That is, I'm just. Um, yeah, you, you, my mind's just spinning here as as all of these um, these ideas are coming through. I, I wanted to to go back to the. Um, you know, we, we were talking about these these broader trends with um, with office and retail, and and I'm interested. You know, we we're speaking at at a general level, but perhaps if we could break 
that down into a few segments and see whether we're we're seeing anything um, we're seeing anything different, perhaps from um, uh, particularly around industries or, or sectors. Uh, and and what I think about if I think on the office side, like I've heard differing feedback, say from government and private sector, um, in in terms of what their future use might be um, or, or desires might be from an office perspective. And then if we flip to retail, I think there's. I mean, it's easy to say, oh well, there's you know, retail is a, is a struggling category, but there are many different offerings within that or, or tenancy categories within that. I think some are perhaps more troubled than others. Are you seeing or do you have any views on perhaps either of those distinctions in, in, in how they might play out differently? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, retail as an asset class, I think the, with the pandemic, there's been winners and losers there, um, as there has been in many other sectors. Uh, obviously, the, the CBD retail has been impacted quite significantly in um, in ma- major capital cities. I mean, Brisbane is one. Um, however, um, it doesn't compare to what's going on in Melbourne mm. as far as um, you know the the impact on CBD retail. Um, but there, the the more localized shopping, you know, the convenience centres have been performing particularly well. Um, so there are winners and losers, and I think too the regional shopping centres have been quite uh, attracting you know quite a lot of people as well you know there hasn't been a big impact there either Um, so and I don't necessarily know whether that's been translating to retail sales um, but there's definitely people through the door Uh, so once again it seems to be more locational but I think there are challenges ahead for retail but I think they were happening anyway really Mm. with um, with online shopping becoming much more of a factor in all of our lives and I think you know the, the COVID shutdown has has meant that many people who perhaps wouldn't have done online shopping now are um, so I think you know that that has just exacerbated a trend that was already happening. So, so what 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 does what are those sort of significant size regional type shopping centres what do what are they going to look like how might they change I, I've got a few ideas about things that might um, you know repurposing in a way like there's significant structures i don't i don't get the sense in australia we are as overserviced as say the us market in in shopping mall space even though we have a lot of it so i'm touch wood i'm hoping not um, abandoned centers but i can see some changes there do you, do you have any do you have any thoughts there i might throw a few of mine at you as well yes certainly um well look, the changes have been happening for quite some time i mean the the component of actual retail in these centers has been diminishing and you know the other the other services whether it's you know entertainment cinemas climbing walls whatever whatever else um and professional services and you know banks and things like that the other services have actually been um been increasing so you're now talking about you know a regional um, shopping center as being a standalone precinct that is is more like a community rather than Mm -hmm. a retail center so that's been happening for a little while Um, and i think you know maybe the centers in the in the cbd haven't been keeping up with that trend either Um, they they, they serve it feels like they serve a slightly different purpose though than um, suburban centers definitely uh, and they're also transport hubs. Let's not forget that. Mm. So, you know, the, the regional shopping centre is more than a shopping centre. Yeah, I mean, I, personally, I've always had a view that they're, they're underutilised in, in that sense, as particularly as someone who has left the CBD and gone 
and, and used to live right next to one of the major shopping centres or near enough to um, in Brisbane. I thought it was a missed opportunity. It'll be interesting to see how that unravels. Um, I said I had a couple of thoughts. Some things that I think about are um, cinema space, for one. Um, that, that particular industry category is under threat for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with COVID, but um, I think... I find it hard to believe that there won't be a lingering concern about closed, close proximity um, spaces like that. Um, so a lot more people, a lot more people would more readily watch something on a streaming service than than go to a cinema. We're already starting to see some decline, um, or some pretty significant decline in different parts of the world around that sector. I, my view for what it's you know worth just looking from the cheap seats, I don't think that will come back and correct itself. So if we take that as an assumption that we have a part of these major centres that's significant in area, but is also detached from the typical traffic, they're often um, on the side, like they're a destination in themselves, so they don't rely on, on traffic. That presents an interesting challenge and opportunity in these regional community hubs as you, as you describe them. So things like... Um, you mentioned edu- uh, so you mentioned aged care before. That's uh, and th- people have often spoken about residential on top of these sorts of developments. Um, education, I think, is an interesting one uh, as as well. Co working, uh, another another one that um, that I that I think uh, is uh, is interesting. And and even back to perhaps something uh, slightly different: uh, logistics hubs or micro hubs. Um, I think. I hadn't looked in detail at it, but I did hear some headlines about Amazon and Maya having some kind of arrangement um, whereby Maya was going to be a collection point or a delivery point for Amazon. I can't imagine that will end well for Maya. Um, but all, all of these different things, you know, that, that I, I, I get excited about new ideas, so I listen to that and go, oh, they would be great. Um, so I'm keen to, to get your thoughts on you know one or, or, or more of those, but perhaps with the question at the end of... At the end of the day, landlords still have to monetize these spaces in some way. So how does that shake out? Well, it's an interesting one because there is so much investment in these spaces, mm. you know, and, and for all of us with our superannuation funds, there's so much investment in these spaces. Um, but I, I think you're, you're onto something there with the alternate uses. I mean, there's no reason why um, regional shopping centres couldn't, couldn't be, you know, mini distribution centres and they couldn't be um, even medical hospital type sort of facilities, um, you know, day hospital facilities, um, co-working spaces. There's lots of opportunities. And I can see that, you know, that I think if there is issues um, in having uh, additional space identified because of, um, you know, cinemas, they take up a lot of space, then I, I landlords are obviously going to be looking at how they can actually get the most from their asset um, by way of return. Mm. So it might take a bit of creative thinking. But yeah. it's interesting, the cinema, um, I lo- the one thing that I love about um, the decline in cinemas is the fact that there are now drive-ins again. You know, there's a few drive-ins around the place, which um, is a good use of leftover space. You know, e- Everything that's old is new again. I love it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I've, I've not been to a cinema. I can't remember the last time I went to a cinema. Uh, my, my 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 kids are not really into that kind of thing, so if they're not into it, I, I never get a look in. Um, so I hope it doesn't totally d- disappear by the time I get to come out the other end of that particular cycle. Um, no. pe- perhaps a shift in direction then. We've been speaking a bit about office 
spoke, speaking about co-working, um, what do you think office design, how will office design change um, in terms of office layout, usage? Um, and and I, spo- I suppose I look at this in, in, or in my head, it, it, it sits in two levels. One of them is what does the, what does the, the physical unit of an office look like? And we've touched on a few themes here already. You know, it's currently CBD focused, concentrated often in a city. You've touched on some ways that that might change. But then as a secondary layer, what does an internal office layout look like? Does it change? Um, you know, I, I think they're, they're two really interesting areas. Do you have some views on, on either of those? Well, I think the, the extent of change really does depend on how long we are in this COVID environment for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if, if this is continuing into the future with uh, for quite some time, which it's likely to, then I think inevitably there will be a change in office design. So I can see things like, you know, wider hallways, um, more space per person, uh, because obviously the, the workspace has been shrinking quite a bit as well. And we've, you know, got down to a situation of you know, hot desking, hot desking and sitting quite close to other people. So I think that will change. Um, and also things like ventilation systems. You know, I think um, windows that can be opened would be preferable. Um, outdoor meeting spaces, if we can do it, and we could certainly do it in Southeast Queensland. Um, the other thing is also the, the height of office buildings. I think, you know, we've been really going for a, iconic um, skyscrapers as our prime office buildings. And I can see that, you know, there is a certain vulnerability there because people don't want to be in lifts. Mm. You know, either we have a situation where we have a a lot of really efficient, uh, you know, more really efficient lifts to transport people more quickly, or we opt for buildings that are a little bit more walkable, um, you know, maybe with more, more stairwells that people can walk between levels without being in the lift. That sounds like a um, something that is part of a, a trend towards the suburbs, um, as opposed to um, a refitting of of a CBD. It, it's it's hard to bring them to a lower level, I suppose. Um, but but I can um, I, I can I hear you on all of those things. I I went. I had a um, a good friend who was uh, at a local architecture practice in Brisbane and. They had the office. Um, that for those that know Brisbane was uh, it was on the corner of Adelaide and Albert Street, right across from King George Square, and they had a terrace going out such that they had probably half their footprint uh, inside, or maybe two thirds inside, and then one third outside. And during the day, in the middle of the CBD, they'd have all of their doors open and be naturally ventilated. The whole whole office would open up. And that was a, an amazing place to work. Um, although I guess that physically is a is a unique, relatively unique in in the CBD. Um, but your, I mean, the comments you make about ventilation systems, I'm seeing a lot of press at the moment. So if you if you look in the sort of the prop tech space, seeing a lot of discussion about contactless, you know, entry and 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 exit. Um, uh, rapidly increasing sophistication of ventilation and hygiene systems. It's like an area that certainly never sounded sexy previously and not a huge amount of effort put into it, even there, even though there were sort of, um, sustainability standards that would, would start to look at those kinds of things. Um, I, I'm guessing those 
those levels and standards that need to be met will, will, will to be, sorry those standards that need to be met will be something that significant tenants will be mandating in their in their lease negotiations and arrangements from from now on I agree with you, Alistair. I think that's going to be really important in giving um, staff the confidence to go back into office buildings. Mm. Uh, because for some people, it's been quite a long time. You know, I, I have spoken to a number of people who haven't set foot inside their physical office environment since March. So, mm. you know, that's over six months now of working from home. Well, I, I mentioned to you uh, again just before we started recording that I'd spoken with three younger lawyers all, all living in, in London. And despite I think all of them having the opportunity to go back to the office now, all of them continued to work remotely and hadn't been back to the office for, for various reasons, but um, no rush to return uh, on on that front. Um, you made an interesting point there that uh, about the things that employers will have to do to get, or they might do to get people to come back to the office. What What are the grab bag of ideas or incentives you think that employers are going to need to do to bring people back? Because I suppose that's a loaded question. It's a, there's an assumption in there that employers are going to want people to come back. Uh, I think there will be some equilibrium met that doesn't involve everyone working from home. Um, and so there will be a desire of employers generally to bring people back to a greater extent than they are at the moment. So I suppose one, do you, do you agree or disagree with that? And tell me why I'm wrong if you disagree. But if you do, what, what can they do? It is an interesting point because I think many people are actually quite sick of working from home as well and they would they long to be back in the um in that's, the office that's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think you know really for a, a lot of employers it's it's very dependent on geographically where they are I mean I think in Brisbane there's a lot more confidence in people being able to feel safe in the office environment so there's probably less coercing that employers have to do um, but it does come down to safety. So I think if, if there can be, um, if employees too can be convinced of the benefits of going into work, you know, there are um, opportunities to socialise or to um, connect with their, with their peers. I think, you know, that's going to help the situation uh, because, you know, essentially we lose a lot of time in travel each day to be in an office environment. And if, if there's seemingly no benefit, then it's, it's unlikely to be, um, you know, people won't want to do it. Uh, but I Can think I just ask you on that? Sorry, but do you think that's the key factor here? Do you think my view is that the one thing people are realizing is how wasted a, a life is when you spend a long time commuting, and that perhaps is one of the key factors um, perpetuating this work from home trend. Do, do you have a view on that? I do. I do have a view on that, and. I think there's obviously a lot of time in the commute, even if you live quite close to your workplace. Um, but I think to a lot of people, uh, you know, even in areas where there isn't um, a particular problem with COVID at the moment, a lot of people don't feel safe on public transport because there's not the ability to um, socially distance in any way. So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, having um, a CBD location also means that people are more compelled to catch public transport. That's a government challenge, though, um, isn't it? Because their and opinions might vary on this. You might disagree with me, but but I'm I'm a big advocate advocate of public transport. Um, we've always been a one car family. I catch public transport where it's sensible to do so, um, and always have. But people aren't doing it now. Um, 
is that is is that coming up for discussion at the moment? I know that there's just a long list of issues the government is dealing with now. Are you hearing anything about ridership and and any thoughts starting to percolate about getting people back on public transport? Um, interestingly, I'm not. Um, Alistair, I, I agree with you. I'm really an advocate for public transport as well, and I'm certainly not uh, an advocate for a car-centric society. Um, but I, I, I don't know that uh, at, at this point a lot has been done to get people back on public transport. Mm-hmm. I, I did hear something about, you know, offering, you know, free transport, um, although I don't think that's come to fruition in Brisbane, but I... I don't think that that's really being, I'm sure it's been considered, but that, there's no strategies being obviously implemented at this stage. Mm. I don't know if it's being anything differently. No, uh, well, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, that, that it's, there are bigger, there are bigger issues to be dealing with at the moment. And, um, and I hope that one comes onto the agenda uh, at, at the appropriate time. Um, we've touched a few, uh, on, on a few points here about, you know, and again, the said earlier that this the underlying premise of the discussion is one of of structural change and and how like the impact on the city, how how the city as a sort of a, an organism, I suppose, is 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 going to to change. Um, we've spoken about CBDs and how their perhaps their significance might differ. Um, and and I've I've heard some interesting commentary about. In people talking about major world cities, um, for example, you know they would say, "Will New York come back? You know, will will it continue to be what it what it always has been, or London, or or any or any major um, major centre like that, or or indeed Sydney as well?" And and I wonder, and and sorry, the the consensus view within my echo chamber, at least for what that's worth, and um, the consensus view seems to be that they will come back. There's there's something about cities like that; they've survived. Um, significant um, impacts over over um, you know over centuries, and so they'll they'll certainly come back again. Um, and I think that's probably true. I think there's something magical about those major cities. But then, being a parochial Queenslander, and with Brisbane, I wonder what like if it doesn't happen to the same extent. If if the sort of centre of of business power tends to be a little bit more spread out through the city, does that change? Brisbane, uh, and and if so, in what ways, and is that a good or a bad thing? Um, I think there will inevitably be change uh, because I think we have focused all of our attention on living as close as possible to the CBD, and that's been where the most desirable suburbs have been, um, you know, within the inner ring. Um, but I can see that there will be an emphasis um, on the suburbs um, and, you know, alter- alternate business districts. Um, so I think I actually think that's a good thing um, for the city mm-hmm. uh, because it does add to the, um, the you know the the walkability the sort of local commute the enhanced community um, I think it's inevitably a good thing um, I agree with you I don't think you know we'll see the death of New York or London or any of those big cities or even you know dare I say it Melbourne will bounce back but it's going to take a little bit of time uh, before people are confident in that environment. Um, but I, I think um, it's interesting the way we don't feel so, well, a lot of people don't feel so compelled to be, you know, living close to their the CBD workplace. You know, mm-hmm. you can see that by what's happening with, um, you know, property prices at the Sunshine Coast. 
um, where we've had people, you know, buying them almost sight unseen from Melbourne, you know, to move to Noosa. Yep. Or, um, you know, even Brisbane people deciding to relocate because they've decided that they can work just as easily from a suburb in Brisbane as they can from, you know, the Sunshine Coast. So mm. I think there's going to be activation. We've all thought of that, though, haven't we? Surely. No, no. <laughs> Don't tell me you haven't. We have. We all have. Yeah. I, I guess the, the, the point I was thinking about is, you know, and being someone who um, did university in, um, in, in Brisbane, started my working career in Brisbane and then fled to Sydney and then other parts of the world and then and then came back um, and seeing you know there, there's there's a benefit I think in terms of um, business activity in having a vibrant place that young people are wanting to come and work in and so I, I totally get the benefits that come from um, a more distributed walkable, um, sustainable existence and personally I, I've subscribed to that but then I wonder do we does Brisbane suffer more is there a bit of a shift in that critical mass of energy and and youthful innovation and enthusiasm that perhaps vibrant economies require or am I just being overly negative do, do, do you know what I mean how they, you, you just perhaps you know people might do university here and, they, and they're gone from day one they don't share the first you know few years of, of their um, of their um, working life here and they don't come back as quickly as they might they don't go and do a few years in London and then come back they might we might lose them more readily we get less people returning which I, I don't think is um, is a good thing or maybe they, they like the walkability and they come back yeah it's, it's interesting. I think, um, uh, you know, COVID interestingly has brought a lot of people back to Brisbane. Uh, but I understand what you mean about um, needing a vibrant, um, a vibrant place for people to socialise and gather. Um, and I think, too, we are really um, a river city, so we're still very focused around um, the river and the entertainment precincts around the, around the river. So I think, you know, that sort of vibrancy of the CBG um, hopefully will be maintained. But I, I think... You know, inevitably there will be some um, repurposing of existing structures, um, you know, just with the change of use or change in demand. I think that's inevitable, but I still see it. It will be a vibrant place. Mm. Yeah, it's. I suppose I think of it as, you know, you've got this engine room of of innovative, um, cutting-edge organisations, which, again, as a parochial Queenslander, I, I want to see resident in Brisbane. I want to see those kinds of um, world-leading um, institutions or organisations here so that, you know, my kids, if they choose to say, will have a job and that the, the, the region continues to to prosper. Um, and, and I think that technology is aggregating these areas of of innovation across the world and it's you know i think as time goes on it'll be increasingly difficult to be able to claim as your own a particular area of expertise and so i'm, I'm particularly conscious of that um uh, you know again we're, we're trading off some really good potentially good and potentially bad bad things here but um it is is a question mark i have over um i i do think a lot through that through that prism in a you know five ten 20-year time frame for Brisbane and what what are those exciting innovative endeavors are going to continue to bring jobs to the region um, I hope this isn't a factor that impacts impacts on that sorry I'm, I'm getting a bit sidetracked here it's just an area I find quite um, quite interesting um, I suppose the last the last area I'd, I'd like to touch on and your 
Um, so your, your legal background um, is perhaps an, an interesting layer on this discussion. Um, where does like what where does the role of government regulation come in here over the next you know five, ten years as as we're dealing with these changes? We're, we're speaking very casually about repurposing real estate for, for different use. There's a planning layer that regulates that kind of thing. So that sounds to me like an area that's going to be um, uh, to be a hot topic or, or looked at. We've spoken about transport, infrastructure, those kinds of things. What were your thoughts on regulatory change and government involvement in helping this transition that we think we're about to go through? Well, I, I guess, you know, there are lots of issues that government is dealing with it at the moment. I mean, the, the COVID situation has obviously been highlighted, but, you know, we have climate change is still a really significant issue um, and how urban settlements and the built environment respond to climate change. We also have this um, overarching, you know, ge geopolitical tension um, happening at the moment. So I think, you know, national security is becoming more of an issue as is personal safety So and information security. So there's a lot going on um, that impacts governance of the built environment. So um, I, I can see that, you know, I to some extent I don't really envy um, political leaders at the moment because they have a lot to contend with. Uh, but I think planning uh, regulation will obviously be very important in dealing with a lot of those issues uh, in, in the built environment, how it's formed, where it's formed. Maybe uh, maybe an area for um, people in, in your profession to be leading the way with some, so some quality thinking about how that might roll out because, you know, all those points you mentioned, which are all, you know, critically important to, to how the world will, will will travel over the next little while. Um, it seems like they're all, it's almost like another critical line on the things that need to be considered in a period of fairly fundamental change. So, you know, you talk about, um, you know, talk about the issues of, of climate change and, and the built environment is um, is a critical component of that. It needs, needs to be thought about if we're undergoing a change in how we interact with the city at the community level um, it's almost like it's a, it's a better a, a bigger and better opportunity to be addressing all of these things as where because we're there's another reason to be making those changes and starting afresh do, do, do you think they might add up to be a, a some benefit rather than weighing each other down well to be honest i just hope that they're actually addressed mm. um I mean, it's it's very it's not easy to address COVID, but it's right in front of us. But the issue about climate change has been with us for a long time, and there's been very little action on it. So um, I would hope that, um, as part of the the governance structure, that we would be looking at um, responding to all of these issues um, and in trying to deal with them. Mm. But I guess I suppose my my optimistic view of that is that when even though climate change is something that is you know an immediate concern and an immediate threat it's often perceived not to be because you know the impacts of it can feel a long way away even though we're seeing examples every day of how things are changing um, but if change is happening at the point 
that you know through the other things that we're talking about and how the city might be repurposed that might be the impetus where you've actually got things moving around and happening where you can start to layer in more you know change on on in other areas that um that otherwise might have been procrastinated over to a, an extent that we we weren't wanting that's true it's a really good time to innovate when we have all of this happening um, the, the I did say it was the last thing, but the, the last thing I did want to speak about, and you'd mentioned this earlier, so I'll, I'll let you lead this discussion. I'm not going to take it to a place you don't want it to go, but higher education is another um, is another sector that is is undergoing um, some significant change at the moment. And again, you can see the changes happening now will um, will probably be long lasting. Um, can Can you give us some insights into what your um, into what you're seeing, and perhaps, I mean, from a real estate point of view, I'm I'm interested to understand how the significant physical footprints will change. But please feel free to talk more broadly about education itself, because it is, you know, it's one of the areas that's been significantly affected. Ah, uh, definitely, the higher education sector has really been affected by COVID. Um, you know, changes to the funding structure and also less certainty around attracting international students. Uh, so I must stress here, these views are my own, not mm -hmm. the views of my university, but um, the challenge has been too with um, engaging our domestic students because we've we moved so rapidly to an online environment um, and I don't think that they were particularly prepared for that. Um, but I think, you know, some of the changes will be really positive. Um, I think the university sector has proven or demonstrated just how agile it is and being able to move within a week to a completely, you know, from being face to face to an online platform. So mm -hmm. I think that's been very positive. Um, and I think the staff have shown a lot of resilience there. Um, but into the future, I think the challenge is going to be incorporating the online environment, but also providing meaningful, you know, face to face experiences for our students in the community. And I mean, you mentioned before the significant infrastructure that QUT has, um, which, you know, it's certainly a, a beautiful campus, um, both campuses. Um, and I still see that, you know, even in a more online environment, we will still be utilising the campus. I think, you know, maybe in different ways, but um, I think those um, networking and, you know, opportunities to connect in a face-to-face -face environment are really appreciated by um, students and, and, you know, alumni and the community generally. Interesting. But it is going to change. It will be different. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Um, and it's, I mean, it would be good as, as someone who has a vested interest in lower levels of education and how they've managed or, or not managed with the current current environment. I, I'm I'm very hopeful of some more innovative outcomes that, that lead to overall better educational outcomes for um, at, at all levels than, than what we had before because it, um, it seems there is the opportunity to be able to leverage knowledge and learning in a far better way with technology but keeping that balance of the physical element that I think everyone that has been lucky enough to go through um, tertiary learning would, would probably say that that's a pretty critical part of the whole experience and what they get from it. Absolutely. Andrea, I have one question I ask at the end to all of my guests. I, I, I ask, what is your current obsession? Um, and it's just a personal insight that you may be willing to share, something outside of outside of work, outside of sort of family and, and, and per personal endeavours that you do that might surprise 
people. You know, maybe there's a new, or well, perhaps not at the moment, like maybe there's a Netflix show that you're binging. Um, maybe there's a language you're learning. Maybe, maybe you, you know, you sort of play the drums and no one knows about it. What, what can you share? Well, I'm certainly not going to reveal what I'm watching on Netflix. Okay. Um, good. Um, but I guess if we did lockdown properly. So we got a, a puppy. We already had a dog and we, um, we have now another puppy. Um, she's a, a Kelpie Border Collie cross. So mm-hmm. she's completely insane. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of management of her and a lot of exercise. Um, the other thing that I've been obsessive about is my urban garden. I've right. started growing food and growing my own vegetables. Nice. So, is that um, something new for COVID or you were sort of dabbling with it before and now you're ramping it up? No, it's new. Okay. Um, and I think I could say it's COVID, but I actually think it might be sibling rivalry because I went to see my brother and he um, has quite a successful urban garden. So um, I took the challenge on and um, and now I do as well, which has been really rewarding. So I spent a lot of time in my garden and I can also see, I, I would like to see um, the integration of opportunities for people to have, you know, to grow their own food within other contexts. You know, I'm really lucky to have quite a big backyard. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you live in an apartment, you might not have the same opportunities. So I think there's a, a real um, opportunity to establish community gardens. That's actually, I mean, in, in the the ideas we were throwing around before about repurposing of space, that's one I didn't mention. Um, but there's um, there's a strong impetus in our family to, to that kind of thing as well. And, and I, I'm fascinated by, although perhaps it's a little bit nerdy compared to the sort of thing that you're talking about but these sort of high-tech in indoor um sort of remote uh, managed um you know farms you know at, at sort of high density and all optimized and, and these sorts of things and it does it, it does paint a sort of a, a different um, a different picture about food production and distribution which i know so little about that i'll just stop there but i, I do find that a fascinating area but no my um, my my 11 year old will um will match up against you with uh, the garden he's building our, our our home garden at the moment and i think if we leave him unrestrained he'll just um he'll fill up the whole backyard before we know it which i think is probably not a bad thing um and i yep. will i will tell you um the the tv show that we've loved um, over over COVID, it's not a new one, and I was devastated to get to the end of season three and realise I'm waiting another year. Um, is uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is actually on Amazon Prime. I don't know if you've seen that, but that is outstanding um, in my view. So, and and my wife's also. So, that's something to look out for if you're if you're in the market. No, I like the recommendations. Thank you. Great, Andrea. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Alistair. That was Dr. Andrea Blake. Senior Lecturer in Property Economics from the Queensland University of Technology and someone who loves to garden but not share her Netflix playlist. Hmm, interesting. And I'm Alistair Fitzgerald, the CEO of Field. We are the leading solution in the Australian market for lease portfolio due diligence. If you are buying or selling commercial real estate assets or a tenant looking to better understand and leverage its lease portfolio, or involved in transaction advisory involving large quantities of leases, let us turn your leases into action. Find out more at fieldql.com. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode.